mortgage is supposed to make coffee. And that seems really obvious. So, so if I were to come into my office, this Yeah, you got, did you guys hear everything I, I just said? Okay, good. All right. um, thank you, Caleb. So, <laughs> uh, so I, she put this in my office, and I was thinking, like, this is supposed to make coffee. So if I walk into my office, like, let's just imagine this. I walk into my office sometime this, this coming week, and in my, in my coffee maker is not coffee, but orange juice. Um, there's a problem. Right? Like, I'm going to be going to Gabby and be like, all right, what did you do to my coffee maker? Because that's something that she would do, put orange juice in my coffee maker. Um, but uh, there's, some, there's a problem. If, if my coffee maker is making orange juice, there's an issue. Right? Because, because my coffee maker is supposed to make coffee. And so if it's producing orange juice, then it's producing the wrong thing. Because the man that created this said that I was supposed to be able to lift this thing up, put grounds. Oh, there are grounds in there. Gross. Um, I was supposed to lift this up put grounds in there, um, and, and then I'm supposed to press the button that says strong, because if you don't press that button, you're weak. And, um, sorry, Wes. Um, anyway, uh, then you're supposed to press the power button, and it turns on, and it starts making coffee. And the, the, the maker, the creator of this coffee maker said that it is supposed to produce coffee. And so if it's producing orange juice, then it's producing the wrong thing, right? You're like, Pastor Nick's gone nuts. Why did he start there? Um, the reason I start there, hang on, let me put this down. It's going to be awkward if I just hold this the rest of the night. The reason I start there is because in our journey in, in Hebrews chapter 12, we, last week we were talking about the fact that we need to submit to God. And I think a lot of us would say that we're submitted to God. We're submitted to whatever God wants. We're submitted to his plan. Whatever he has for our life, that's what we're going to do. But the thing is, is he gets to determine what submission produces. And so if our version of submission is not producing what he says it should produce, then he would look at, look at our submission, just like I would look at my coffee maker if it's producing orange juice. He would look at our submission and say, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your version of submission because it's not producing what I said it should produce. So last week we learned in the book of Hebrews, we're in a series called Marathon, where we're learning to run our race faithfully, run through this life to be able to finish our course faithfully. And so last week we learned that in order to run this life in faithfulness, that God's proven his faithfulness. We need to trust that he is faithful, and that way we can be faithful by looking to the example of Jesus. And we pursue him by looking, looking toward the end, the joy that's set before us, that one day we're going to be with God in heaven for all of eternity, and that's what we're pursuing, that's what we're running to. And last week we talked about when faithfulness gets difficult uh, because of the hardships in life, we need to remember that God is always using those hardships to make us more like Jesus. The, the chastening of the Lord is how the author puts it. So what we're called to do when our race gets hard, last week we talked about we, we need to submit to that chastening. That God, whatever you want, whatever you have for my life, whatever hardships you want me to go through, whatever difficulties you're going to send my way, God, I'm going to submit to that. And again, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, I'm submitted to that. Whatever God has for my life, whatever hardships he wants me to go through, I'm going to submit to that. 
And I know most of us would say that we're submitted to that. My question is, would God say that you're submitted to that? Would God say that the fruit of your life looks like someone who is submitted to his plan? So what we're going to do in verses 12 through, I think, 17, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the side effects of submission. And I'm going to give them to you up front, just so you don't have to be wondering what they are. Here, Here's what they are. Side effects of submission. Here it is. A side effect of submission is that you live a life of encouragement. A side effect of submission is that you live a life where you're following peace. And the side effect of submission is that you live a life pursuing holiness. And so we're going to break those down. The first one is that you live a life of encouragement. We see that in verse number 12. Look at me in verse number 12. Wherefore, now I hate to stop after the first word, because if I stop after every word, we're going to be here a long time. But I'm going to stop after that first word, because when you're studying your Bible and you see the word wherefore or therefore, you need to look back and see what it's there for. So, so we know so far that we've, we've, we've studied submission. So the author has not left the topic of submission yet. I want us to realize that. He's saying because, because of the fact that God is able to use our wrongs for our good, or use our hardships for our good, because of that fact, look what he says. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths of your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So he says that we should lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. What the author is doing when he says that is he's, he's quoting an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 35. And um, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Hebrew believers, people who were Jewish. They've now placed their faith in Jesus, in the Messiah. So they would have been really familiar with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a really big prophetic book in the Old Testament, uh, the biggest prophetic book in the Old Testament. And they would have been really familiar with a lot of the, the book of Isaiah. And so when he quotes this passage, their mind immediately is going back to Isaiah 35. Now, if we go back to Isaiah 35, Isaiah had a really difficult message to, to preach to Israel because most of Isaiah's message was, y'all messed up, like bad. Um, they were sinning against God. They've gone after idols. And so Isaiah's message to Israel was, God is going to judge you. God's going to bring judgment to you. He's going to destroy you. He's, he is going to lay his hand of judgment upon you. That's Isaiah's message. When we get to Isaiah 35... Isaiah's message kind of changes. Because up until this point, it's been, you're, you're, God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. We get to Isaiah 35, and Isaiah kind of stops, and he says, but one day, huh, one day you're not going to be facing God's judgment anymore. One day God's going to renew Israel. One day God's kingdom is going to come. One day, and it's interesting the words that he puts, uh, he says that, that Israel will be given the glory of Lebanon and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, and the whole world are going to see, is going to see the glory of God through Israel. And it's in that context that, that Isaiah says this, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. So he's quoting that verse. 
And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get these people, these Hebrew believers, he's trying to get them to remember the fact that God promised all the way back in Isaiah 35 that the kingdom is coming and that we can look at the difficulties in this life as, as, as like just hardships and we hate them and we're miserable all the time, or we can look at them as God trying to make us more like Jesus and we can do that because one day the kingdom is coming. One day God, Jesus is going to come back. One day we're going to live with him in glory for all of eternity. And it's going to be awesome and it's amazing. And that's the day that we get to look forward to. And that's what he's trying to draw their attention to. That one day they're going to be in the kingdom. And so he says, strengthen the feeble knees. Lift up the arms that hang down. He is calling them to encourage those around them because they realize and they're submitted to God's plan, they can now turn around and encourage other people and say, hey, I know it's hard right now. Hey, I know it's difficult. Hey, I know you're going through it. But listen, one day the kingdom is coming. One day God's going to come back and he's using the hardships that you're in right now to make you more like Jesus. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to strengthen the hands that hang down. The people who are discouraged, the people who don't know what to do, the people that that are so confused with the trials that they're going through in their life. The author is telling them, hey, now that you're submitted to God's plan, go out and encourage the people who right now are hurting. Strengthen the feeble knees. Lift up the hands that hang down. And when I say encourage, I don't mean that if someone's spouse passes away or a family member is sick, that you go to them and you quote Romans 8.28. That's not what I'm talking about. Although that verse is encouraging, but sometimes that's not the time. Sometimes encouragement looks like just sitting there. Because if you remember back in the book of Job, or you guys remember the book of Job, uh, if we go back there, Job's, Job had three friends that sat with him in that difficulty. And, and, and for seven days after Job lost everything, for seven days, they didn't say a word. They sat with Job in his sackcloth and ashes and just sat there with him. They didn't say a word for seven days. And the problems didn't come until his friends started talking. <laughs> when they opened their mouth, that's when Job got discouraged. Sometimes encouragement just looks like being there for people. And that's what the author is saying here. Hey, we need to be willing. We need to understand that God's going to use evil for good so that we can turn around and encourage others. Because if we're constantly discouraged and miserable all the time, there's no way we're going to be able to encourage other people in the church. The life submitted to God is a life lived encouraging others. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most people we talk to understand that this world is falling apart. Most people. Most people understand the stuff that's going on in Israel. Most people understand the stuff that's going on in our government. Most people understand, even, even if they're in a different political party than you do, most people understand that this world is falling apart. Deep down somewhere, they understand this world is falling apart. I mean, we understand that. And I think deep down most people do too. And so when you're talking to people in the church, especially people who are discouraged, the goal is not, and they hear, they hear it enough from CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, they hear it enough from them. What they don't need when, when they come to you is like a recap of what you heard on the Tucker Carlson show. 
they know this world's falling apart. And I don't think it's our job to, to constantly be discouraging and pointing out the negative. Now, I'm not saying that it's not our job to warn people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that most people know, especially the people in the church, and so when we go to, to have conversations with them, our conversations with people should be encouraging conversations. Conversations where we're trying to build people up, where we're trying to strengthen the feeble knees, where we're trying to lift up those arms that hang down. Paul said this in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5. He said, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. So, so there has to be a balance in our life. Because what this is saying is that there are some people that we need to warn. It's, he says to warn the unruly. I'm not taking that away from Scripture. We need to warn the people who are unruly. We need to warn people that the direction that they're going is not the direction that God wants them to go. We need to warn the unruly. But that verse also says that we need to comfort the feeble-minded. And I think a lot of times what we end up doing is we warn the feeble-minded and we comfort the unruly. And this verse is saying, no, the life submitted to God, the life submitted to God's plan for his life or her life, is a life that is committed to encouraging other believers. To encourage them that, hey, hey, your life isn't over. God's, God's not through. God still can work this together for good. Our life should be a life of encouraging other believers. And so if you find yourself in a place where you're consistently negative, you're always pointing out the negative uh, in everything, you're, you're constantly thinking about all the terrible things that are going on in the world, you're constantly paranoid about you know, what's going to happen with this part of the government, what's going to happen in this party, and what's going to happen uh, overseas, and we're constantly worried and, and anxious and constantly struggling with, 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 with our mind and, and, and the things that are going on in the world, all I'm saying is God says that the life of a, of a, submissive, of a submissive person looks like someone who's committed to encouraging others. And if you're constantly worried, then I would just propose maybe we're not submitted. But he doesn't just say that. He goes on two other areas, two other areas that, that, that show us whether we're submitted or not. So we've got that. A life of a submitted person is someone who's committed to encouraging others. But then look what he says in verse number 13. And make straight the paths of your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So, so he says to make straight the paths of your feet. That a person submitted to God is going to follow the right path for their life. They're going to follow God's path. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, 26 and 27, he says, ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. That's the path that we should be on. So what does this path look like? Well, it, it, he, sa he says it in verse number 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I want to clarify something here. The author is not saying that if you, if, you're, uh, you, if you have a conflict with someone, then you're not going to see the Lord. And he's not saying that if you messed up on holiness a little bit, that, that you're not going to see the Lord. What he's saying is that someone who is going to see the Lord, these are going to be trademarks of their life. That, that's what he's trying to communicate. And there's two of them, that they're going to follow peace with all men and that they're going to be holy. And so those are our, those are our second two points. Those are our second two uh, um, uh, side effects of submission, that you will follow peace and that you'll pursue holiness. 
holiness. And what the author does is he breaks down in verses 15 through 17 what that looks like. And the first one is that you will follow peace. You're going to follow peace with all men. Now, when I used to hear stuff like that, when I used to hear that you're, you're supposed to follow peace with all men, I would think, yeah, but not, not him. Like, I, I'll follow peace with most people, but I'm not going to follow peace with that person. Like, I can't pursue peace. I can't, I can't solve a conflict with that person. Like, there's no way I'm going to pursue peace with that person. Maybe that's, maybe that's you here tonight. You're like, man, no, like, yeah, I'll pursue peace with most people, but there's no way that I'm going to pursue peace with him. Like, there's no, after what they did, there's no way that I'm going to pursue peace with that person. Like, I, there's no, absolutely not. There's no way I'm going to try to resolve that conflict. There's no way I'm going to talk to him. There's no way that I'm going to try to pursue peace with that person. There's no way I'm going to do it after what they did. Like, God, surely he knows what they did to me. Like, he knows that I'll never be the same after what they did. He knows that, 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 that I'm, I'm going to struggle for the rest of my life after what that person did to me. He knows, and he, there's no way that God would want me to pursue peace with that person. And yet he says, pursue, follow peace with all men. Just for fun, I looked up what that word all meant in the Greek. <laughs> and it's got a wide range of, of definitions. So I'm going to read them all to you. I wrote them all down. Here, here's the definition. Each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. Everyone. Even if they hurt you that we are supposed to pursue peace with all men. That is a side effect of submission. If you're submitted to what God wants for your life, then you will pursue peace with all men. We're going to pursue eagerly. That's what that word follow means. It means to chase after something eagerly. The Bible says in James 3, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if, if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. When we as, when we as Baptists, a lot of time, we, when we think of something that is satanic, a lot of times we think of like Ouija boards. We're thinking like the seances, people with hoods over their heads, huddling around a fire, like speaking Latin. Um, we think of the like like the horror movies. We think of the Conjuring. All these different things that that these these things are satanic. What James says is if there's envying and bitterness in your heart, that that kind of wisdom, that kind of thinking, is earthly, sensual, and devilish, satanic that that kind of wisdom is not from the Father. But it's from Satan. It's from the enemy. That is where our bitter envying and strife comes from. And this means that if there's someone that we know we have a conflict with, that we need to do everything we can to resolve it. 
that we need to resolve it. Jesus said this, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother has aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, listen, I don't want your worship. Stop singing the songs until you get that right. He he literally says, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you come to worship God, and then you remember while you're at the altar that, that you've got a problem with somebody, that someone's offended with you, that you're to leave that gift at the altar and first be reconciled with your brother. I don't think I take that seriously. I don't think a lot of us take that seriously. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I am told that Christians do not love each other. I am very sorry if that be true, but I rather doubt it. For I submit, or I suspect that those who do not love each other are not Christians. That's harsh. That's what John said. John said in 1 John, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For how can he love God whom he hath not seen, and not love his brother whom he hath seen? He says that that a, a life submitted to God is a life pursuing, chasing after peace with every man. And if we don't do that, here's the danger, verse number 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. When he says that, that the person fails the grace of God, that doesn't mean that he loses his salvation. That's not what it's talking about. What that word fail is to fall short of. And so because we're believers in Jesus, we have been given an amazing amount of grace. you agree? I mean, we were, we were doomed to spend eternity separated from God in hell. That, that was our eternal destination. And then Jesus came down to this earth. He, he lived a perfect life. He died the death that you and I should have died so that we could have spend eternity with God in heaven. That's an incredible amount of grace. And so to fall short of that grace is to not live up to it. Not, not to live up to that grace. Not to, not to have your life live in response to that grace. And what he's saying is, is a person has fallen short of the grace of God. He's not living in accordance to that grace if he allows bitterness to take control of his life. If you are not willing to follow peace with that, with, with people, if you're bitter in your heart, th- then you have fallen short of the grace of God. You're, you're, you're not living in accordance to the grace that you've been offered from God. You're like the unjust servant who was forgiven an immense debt and went to his fellow servant and held him against the wall and said, pay me what you owe me. Because the opposite of forgiveness is bitterness. And so I'm going to ask the question, who is it in your life that you are not willing to forgive? Who's the person that as you're driving down the road, you're like having conversations with them? Don't act like you're better than me. I know you've done this, where you're driving down the road and you're like, man, if I I just had the guts to say this to that person, I would say it right now, Or, or the person that you leave a conversation with and all of a sudden all the arguments start to come to your head. You know what I'm talking about? 
who's that person? Well, you're just like constantly having fights in your mind with wishing that you had the guts to say all the things that you wish you could say to that person. The person who did that thing and you refuse to, to forgive them. Who is it? Listen, I, I'm not saying, and I don't want you to confuse this. I am not saying that you need to keep yourself in a bad or a dangerous relationship. Is not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that we need to be willing and ready to forgive. That doesn't mean that, that you have to go back. That doesn't mean that you have to have the same kind of relationship that you have before. But what it does mean is that you have to be ready to cancel the debt that they created in your life. To say, hey, you don't owe me anymore. Because that's what Jesus did with us. And so harboring bitterness, when we're tempted to harbor bitterness, what do we need to do? We need to submit to God. Because if we're submitted to God, that's going to cause us to pursue peace with other people. Because we're going to think, hey, even if they did something that I didn't like, even if now they're a member of a different political party, even if they did something where my life will never be the same, even if they ruined my life, I know that what they did, God can use for good. That's what Joseph realized. I mean, I don't, I don't think that most of us had had siblings that threw us into a pit and sold us to slavery. If we, if we, if we do, there's, we're going to have counseling in the back afterwards because you probably need it. Uh, Joseph had a really rough life. He had a really, really weird family dynamic. His brothers threw him in a pit, sold him to slavery, into slavery. Then he was put in prison for something that he didn't do. If anyone deserved to be bitter, it was Joseph. I mean, he went through, he went through it, man. We get to the end of his life, and now he's a leader in Egypt. His brothers come to Egypt because they're looking for food. And Joseph could have done so many things. He could have thrown them in jail. He could have, he could have made them slaves. He, he could have had them all killed. But instead, he puts them through a series of tests to figure out if their hearts have changed at all. And then he sends them back to get the father and their little brother. He brings them all back and gives them homes. That, that doesn't make sense to us. But Joseph understood something that a lot of people don't understand. Because when we get to the book of Gen or the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph's father dies and the brothers come and they're like, Joseph, are you going to kill us? Like, now dad's dead. Now you can get your revenge. Are you going to kill us? And Joseph says in, in chapter 50, verse number 20, he says, no, 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 no. As for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph says, your debt that you created with me, I'm just going to absorb it, and I forgive you. That's the life of someone who's submitted to God. The life of someone who is submitted to whatever God wants them to do. It's someone who is going to pursue peace with other believers. And that's what Jesus did as he's hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he forgave us. And so the life of someone who is following him is someone who is going to forgive other people, who is going to pursue peace, not harbor bitterness, but pursue and follow peace. And so if you're submitted to God, you're going to encourage others. If you're submitted to God, you're going to follow peace. But then lastly, if you... If you're submitted to God, you're going to pursue holiness. Uh, verse number 14 says this. Uh, 
follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. That last one is holiness. And I live in a generation that really struggles with that word. Like we really struggle with that word. Gen Z really struggles with that word. That word holiness. And I think what, what has happened, the pastor did a great job this morning when he was talking about uh, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, sin when it's finished, bringeth forth death. And he, and he laid the chairs up here and he talked about how these things leading up to it aren't necessarily sin, but they can lead to sin. It's a, a great illustration. If you weren't here this morning, go back and watch it. It was, it was great. I think what happened with my generation is that for a really long time, there, there were leaders who, who, would make, who would make stances for themselves in these areas. Right? They, they would make standards for themselves to keep them from sin, but then they took those standards and they made them Bible, which is not what those standards were meant to be. And, and they, so they made them Bible. They, they made it so that, hey, if you didn't follow the same standards that I did, then you were, you were living in sin. You weren't living holiness. And so what happened is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Because Jesus says to the Pharisees in Mark seven thirteen that they were making uh, the word of God of none effect through their traditions. And so we had that for a really long time. Now Gen Z's come on and they're like, man, we just like, like holiness doesn't matter at all. Like the word of God means nothing anymore because, because the word of God has made, made of none effect. So my generation, it really struggles with holiness. They really struggle with that word. And so I want to be abundantly clear what, I, what I'm talking about when the Bible says that we need to live a holy life. What it's talking about is that you say no to the things that God says no to, that you say yes to the things that God says yes to, and that you stay as far away from sin as you possibly can. That, that is holiness in a nutshell. And so when the Bible says that if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery already in her heart, that you're going to be really, really careful about the things that you watch. When the Bible says that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, that you're going to say, hey man, I'm not even going to touch that stuff. That when the Bible says um, that if you read this book and you see things that are inconsistent with you, then this book is right and you're wrong, you're, you're going to repent of those things. That when the Bible says that, that a husband is to love his wife, that you are going to love and pursue after your wife. That when the Bible says that wives are to submit to their husbands, that you are going to be submissive to your husband. That, that when the Bible says that you're to honor your father and your mother, that you're to obey your parents, that you say, hey, you know what, even if I don't like what my parents tell me, I'm going to obey them. All it means is that you follow the things that are in this book. And we have gotten so far away from that as a country. What the author is saying here is that a person that's submitted to God's plan is a person who the word of God is very weighty in their life. It carries a lot of weight. Does God's word carry a lot of weight in your life? When you see things that are inconsistent in your life with this book, do, do, you, do you ask the Holy Spirit to change those things about you? Or, or do you just pursue along, doing exactly what you want to do? This is a huge problem for many people because when life gets hard, like it is for these Hebrew people in Hebrews chapter 12, when life gets hard, it's really easy to just kind of do things because we feel relaxed when we do them. We want to do things because, because they make us feel better and life's hard and so we're just going to do these things and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to get addicted. We're not going to do them often, but we're just going to, we're just going to do them. And the author is saying that's dangerous. 
And when you do that, what you're doing is you're sacrificing the eternal for the temporal. Just like somebody else in the Old Testament. Look at verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for ye know how that afterward when he had inher- when when he would have inherited the blessing he was rejected for he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears back in genesis chapter 25 there's this story of jacob and esau and Jacob and Esau, they were twins. They grew up together. Uh, Esau was the, the, the big one, the guy that was like going out. He was like the man's man. Uh, Esau's name means Harry. Like they were pretty creative because he came out Harry and they said, oh, Harry. And then uh, J- Jacob's name means heel grabber because he was grabbing his brother he- brother's heel. They were super creative with names in, in back then. But Jacob and Esau, they grew up together. Jacob decides that he deserves the birthright over Esau. So Esau comes back one day and he's like, Jacob, I'm, he says, well, every teenager in this room has ever said, I'm starving. And he says, like, I need something to eat. I'm going to die right now if you don't give me food. Jacob's cooking. And he says, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give you food. Just give me your birthright. Like, just give me the inheritance that, that you're going you're gonna to earn from dad. And he's like, well, that inheritance is going to be nothing if I'm dead, so give me the food. Yeah, you can have my inheritance. Whatever. Take it. I don't care. What a dumb decision. Right? I saw, I saw a video earlier this week. It was, a, it was, a, it was like, I think it was a YouTube short of this guy who, who he laid down, he laid down 10,000. It was, it was his three-year-old son. He laid down $10,000, right, on this side of the table. And the kid's like looking at it, and he's like, you know, like, about to take it. And he's like, hold on a second. And then he takes two Oreos, two, not even the whole pack, two Oreos. And he puts it on the other side of the table. And he's like, all right, but you can only pick one, $10,000 or the two Oreos. And the kid like didn't even skip a beat. He was like, Oreos gone. Like, I mean, he didn't even have to think about it. We laugh at that. But when God looks at our life, so often we're grabbing after the Oreos. We're grabbing after the things that aren't going to last forever. We're trying to pursue things that, in our life that, that, that are even sinful. We're sacrificing. When we don't pursue holiness, what we're doing is we're sacrificing things that can last forever that thing, for things that are going to bring us pleasure right now. And frankly, it's, it's really dumb. It's really dumb when I do it. Because I do it. And God looks at it and he's like, why are, you, why are you grabbing after the Oreos? Why are you grabbing after things that are just going to last you right now? They're not going to last forever. Why are you reaching for those? So we have to stop using our situations as an excuse for our lack of holiness. Because remember, these Hebrew believers are going through a really difficult time. And yet the author still says, hey, if you're submitted to God in your difficulty, you're going to pursue holiness. You're going to be faithful to God. You're not going to give way to sin. You're not going to sacrifice the temple or the eternal for the temple. You're going to pursue holiness. And verse 17 says this, For you know that how that, how af, how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he fought for, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now again, a lot of people would say that that verse means that if you don't live a holy life, that 
you're, you, there's no place for repentance. I don't think that's what he's talking about. When he says that, I think what he's saying is that you can't go back. There's no, uh, when you choose to sacrifice the temporal for or the eternal for the temporal, you can't undo that. There's no going back. There's no reduce. There's no reset button. That's a permanent decision. And he's saying, hey, be really careful the decisions that you make when you're going through a difficult time. We need to be really careful. Because a lot of times, what happens when we're going through difficult times is we have one of three responses, if not all three responses. And here's, here's what they are. We get negative. We get really negative. Like our, our life is over. Nothing is going to good, good come from our life. Like we get really, really negative. Or we get angry. We get bitter at the situation. We get bitter at people. We get upset. And we f- refuse to forgive the people who are responsible for our mess. Or we make really bad choices. We sacrifice the, the eternal for the temporal. And what the author of Hebrews is proposing is that in our suffering and in our, in our difficulty that we submit to God. And what does that submission look like? It looks like being a person who, who is positively encouraging people. It looks like being a person who is following peace. And it's being a person who is pursuing holiness. Father, we're thankful for this time that we've been able to get into your word, to learn from you. I know that this is